You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today I've got my friend Alfonso Pecatiello. Alfonso is the founder and CEO of the Macro Compass. He's also the former head of a $20 billion bond portfolio. So Alf, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's awesome to have you on. Sri, it's my pleasure to spend my Saturday afternoon with you, a the most talented young macro guy I've ever met. So let's have a chat. Thank you so much, Alf. Um, you know, to kick things off, I think one of the things that's on everyone's minds this week is is the jobs number. So, you know, we are speaking on the 4th of March and the jobs number comes out on the 10th of March. And what we observed last month, so the January number was it, it came in at about 517,000, which was wildly above expectations. And there's been this conversation around how the economy has been a lot more resilient compared to what most people have expected. And, you know, a lot of people were forecasting a recession to be you know, early 2023, you know, maybe Q2 2023 now. Um, but, you know, the economy just seems to be really, really strong. And, you know, one of the ISM numbers, I think the ISM prices paid this month came out over, uh, came out over 50, signaling an expansion or an increase in prices paid versus the consensus, which was uh, below 50, uh, that was expecting a decrease in prices paid. That is that inflationary pressures were actually coming off. Um, so, you know, how are you thinking about the strength of the economy, you know, a lot of it has been sort of attributed to uh, private sector balance sheets remaining strong and, you know, how these were fixed during uh, the lower rates era after the COVID pandemic initially hit. So how are you actually thinking about uh, what's going on in the economy today? Guys, okay, Ray, I'm going to give you three figures for listeners to understand where the U.S. economy growth is trending towards. Mm-hmm. U.S. real final sales real final domestic sales. It's a subcomponent of GDP report. It's printing at 0.7% annualized on a three-month moving average basis. 0.7% is way below trend in that series. And real final sales represent basically the domestic, a measure of domestic demand within the US in real terms. Mm-hmm. The second figure I'm going to give you relates to full-time hiring in the U.S., coming back to your labor market question. Full-time hiring on a year-on-year basis in the U.S. is declining very rapidly and growing at annualized levels just above 0%. So again, we are not adding full-time jobs at a rapid pace in the U.S. We're actually growing quite below trend when it comes to adding permanent workers. And the third figure is real incomes. So if you look at real um, wage growth, it's been negative now for almost 18, 20 months in a row, which again is not particularly uh, promising when it comes to the ability to support stronger consumer spending on a real basis over time, unless you lever up and use credit card debt, consumer debt, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that you can bridge and have more uh, temporary real purchasing power. So those are the three statistics just to paint the big picture. And uh, maybe you have some comments on those. So I'm going to stop for a second before we move to discuss the job market uh, report more, you know, about this quarter. 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's a, that's a great place to start. Just because I think what's interesting is, you know, maybe say six months ago, um, you know, mine and probably yours as well, your Twitter page is full of these, you know, uh, you know, pictures of, you know, posters where, you know, all these companies were trying to hire, you know, where, you know, labor shortages and how, um, you know, people were, people were getting paid, say, $100 just to go for an interview to be, uh, you know, a server at McDonald's, uh, you know, for example. So I think that's, I think that's, I think, you know, on that, on that front, you know, seeing, uh, seeing, you know, full-time hiring decline as well as um, real wages decline. Um, I think that's, I think that's very interesting. Just wanted to ask you about, so with regards to that real wages number, is that because wage growth is, you know, is, you know, why, why, uh, you know, how much of that is because, you know, inflation is, uh, you know, inflation is hot versus, you know, wage growth actually being sluggish? So if you look at nominal wages in general, you actually see them still trending at levels which are not comfortable uh, for the Fed to think about inflation trending down to 2%. So from an historical perspective, nominal wage growth is pretty elevated. And it's mostly really a function of inflation. So people are trying to demand for wage increases that tend to at least offset inflationary pressures. They haven't made that yet. So real wages are negative, but they are moving towards that direction. Wage growth is nothing else that, generally speaking, a function of how tight the labor market is looking at the labor supply dynamic in the labor market, right? So let's talk about that, that demand and supply. What's been going on between 2021 and early 2022 is that with the reopening and pent-up demand and the massive fiscal stimulus, companies had to hire people. But actually, the labor supply was impaired for many reasons. One where, let's say, that the great retirement or whatever it was called, so people chose to retire, the labor supply diminished. We still have about a million-plus workers that have not come back to the labor supply in the U.S. So you had that temporary, very, very strong mismatch between a lot of demand for labor and scarce supply for labor, right? And that's, that's a, that has driven the pickup in, uh, in nominal wage growth. But you look at it today, and today I think the labor market is at a different stage, right? It's the stage where rather than the demand be, being very strong, we have talked about year-on-year full-time hiring being almost flat, the supply hasn't really come back online. So you're looking instead at rather a frozen labor market. That's how I would define it. Rather than being incrementally hot, the labor market is at a tight condition when you look at it, when you look at it from a T0, time zero perspective. Today, it's still hot, but it isn't becoming hotter at all. It's rather cooling down. It's not just not cooling down fast as the Fed would like it to be, but it is cooling down. So how do we see that? You can, you can measure that um, a couple of ways. The first is this full-time hiring pace. That's, that's a very interesting statistics. The second one you can look at is the non-farm payrolls data are subject to quite some statistical uh, assumptions, let's say. So we have a lot of stuff that goes into the non-farm payrolls, which is not hard data, but it's the result basically of statistical adjustments. So you have the birth to death uh, of, of new businesses in the US, for example. That's not a hard data. That's an estimation of how many new businesses we create in the US on a monthly basis. And that, you know, that has boosted um, non-farm payrolls by a large margin compared to what it normally would have done before the pandemic. So the pandemic has distorted some of the statistics. So instead of just focusing on non-farm payrolls, I think it's good to look at a blend of indicators in the labor market. And if you then try and look, for instance, at a, let's say a mix, a blend, and you include as well the ADP numbers, 
or other indicators in the job market, you realize that what's going on really is rather labor hoarding than adding new employees on a full-time basis. One clear example is the construction sector. When the housing market activity stops as fast, as suddenly as it had done, normally you have, with a small lag, layoffs in the construction sector. So housing sales in the US, in Canada, in Australia are down 30, 40% on a year-on-year -year basis. Because mortgage rates are too high, house prices are still relatively elevated. Basically, there are no buyers and sellers are not selling. So there is no activity. The housing market is frozen. Generally, you get construction employees and any employees related to the housing market, broadly speaking, getting laid off. So if you actually plot, and I did that on the macro compass, construction contribution to GDP growth, mm -hmm. which is very negative right now as construction activity has slowed down, against year-on-year -year hiring of construction employees, you see quite a tight relationship. And that makes sense. So right now, construction employees should have been laid off in America to the tune of 500,000 plus layoffs only in the construction sector. Sorry. Do you know how many layoffs we have seen according to official statistics? None. Actually, the construction sector is still hiring on a net basis, which wow. is completely dissonant compared to history. You would expect people being laid off given the housing market is completely dysfunctional at this stage and it is not happening. So why is that? I think mostly because of labor hoarding. If you fire the construction employee in 2021, good luck getting one back. It was basically impossible. And so companies are perhaps still scarred, I think, from those um, situations and just trying to hoard to their labor force, maybe reduce mm -hmm. their work weeks, which is something else also visible in the numbers rather than laying them off. This is delaying the weakness you would have expected in the labor market, which is not becoming super apparent yet. But guys, the labor market isn't getting increasingly hotter. It is tight from a, a, a standalone perspective, if you look at it now, but it is cooling down. And I think that's pretty much undeniable. Yeah, I think, I think you know, one thing that's very, um, I think one thing that you know that I think is very important is, so the layoffs that we're seeing so far have been from those sectors that have done, I guess, quote unquote, really well after um, the COVID pandemic hit, say over the 2021 to early 2022 period. So, you know, if you look at, the tech layoffs, you know, Google, Meta, Amazon, all these firms did incredibly well in the aftermath of, of the zero rates policy. And, you know, to an addition, because of, you know, everyone was staying at home, et cetera. And then, you know, 2021 was a, was an absolute, you know, blockbuster year for investment banks. And, you know, we've seen, you know, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, layoff workers. And then, you know, as you mentioned, with regards to construction, uh, you know, construction has laid off, as you mentioned, that 500,000 number while the NFP uh, number is not, able, uh, you know, does not actually capture that. Um, so I think, you know, it's, I think, you know, what you mentioned is super duper interesting. Yeah. So the labor market, I think, is one of the riddles that macro investors are trying to grapple with. And honestly, it also bothers the Federal Reserve, which has a dual mandate, labor market uh, full employment and inflation at 2%, right? And so they look at that side of the labor market, uh, uh, that side of the mandate has completely, totally achieved the full employment and even actually overachieved from that perspective. And they look at it as a, as a burden in their attempt to slow inflation down to 2%. So what that will end up doing, I think, Sri, is 
effectively uh, leading the Fed to have an overtight stance, uh, which will ultimately not only allow them to achieve a 2% inflation, but probably a lower one. And this is an out of consensus call because around now in financial markets, there is this new narrative that inflation will never be back to 2%. That it will slow down, yes, but maybe to 3 and 4%, but 2% is unachievable. It's impossible that inflation will ever slow down below 2%. And I think that is confusing macro trends with macro cycles. So I want to talk about that for a second. Macro trends first, and that's what people are focusing on. So on a long-term basis, there have been some changes in the economy, structurally speaking, after the pandemic. The labor force has shrunk. Globalization, the push for additional globalization has perhaps diminished a bit. So reshoring of supply chains, reshoring of labor, a fight for commodities, a more commodity-centric world, at least than it was before the pandemic. Um, labor supply issues, labor onshoring issues, geopolitical problems. So you might want to make a point, Sri, where the world after, post-pandemic, has a slightly different inflationary setup than before the pandemic. So you might want to say, from a trending perspective, a long-term perspective, the new average for inflation in advanced economies, instead of being 1.5%, it's perhaps 2.5%. Maybe, maybe that's correct. This is a macro trend. But we are talking about inflation in this cycle, and a cycle can last anywhere between two and three and five years, right, in macro. So we have now seen a cycle of inflation going the way, you know, accelerating rapidly around the world. Even in Japan, now you have core inflation north of 3%. Yeah. And people are now extrapolating that this cycle will never reverse back. We'll just be at the new trend, which is global inflation above 3%. And will, inflation will never cyclically slow down back at zero or 1%. And I think that's wrong. And why? The economy and markets in 2023 and in 2024 will be nothing else than the reflection of monetary and fiscal policy in 2022. So the economy and markets work with a lag. In 2021 and early 2022, we have seen super bullish markets, strong nominal growth, very low unemployment rate. And why? Because in 2020, we printed a bazillion money. And I mean real economy money. I mean money for us. So the private sector got a lot of fiscal stimulus from the government. And banks were lending because the governments were guaranteeing their losses. This was the pandemic period, right? So the private sector got a lot of money being thrown at them. And so the economy grew cyclically extremely strong. And the nominal growth was very, was very high. And earnings grew 40% in the S&P. That happened 12 months later. Now look at how monetary and fiscal policy was tight in 2022, and it is still tight as we speak. There is no fiscal stimulus going on of any relatively large size, and monetary policy is very, very tight wherever you look at, and it's going to remain tight for a while. So why would you not expect that in the second half of 2023 and the beginning of 2024, the market and the economy will reflect this time the tightness in monitoring fiscal policy exactly as they reflected the easing in monitoring fiscal policy in 2021. So cycles shouldn't be confused with new trends. And I think because of how tight monitoring fiscal policy was in 2022, and still is actually in 2023, both inflation and growth are going to come down hard, very hard in 2023 and in 2024. Mm -hmm. Got it. And 
And yeah, usually the argument against that has been that, you know, when we had those zero rates, um, now, as you mentioned, when we had that fiscal stimulus, et cetera, you know, a lot of companies took that time period to refinance themselves, you know, borrow at lower interest rates and, you know, pay and, you know, get rid of high interest rate debt and therefore make their balance sheet stronger. You know, similarly, you know, from a household standpoint, a lot of people refinance their mortgages at, say, you know, three, and this is specifically in the U.S., where you have fixed rate mortgages, they refinance that at two to three percent versus you know paying say a four or five percent interest rate whenever they actually bought the house. Um, and so you know, sort of when you're on that note, um, you know, people argue that you know, because private sector balance sheets are as strong as they are, and because you know the private sector decided that they would you know be you know, they would become financially um stronger, they would take advantage of uh, lower interest rates to become financially stronger. You know the private sector and the household sector overall are actually in a pretty good spot in order to weather, um, weather any sort of recession or weather any sort of economic hardship that, uh, you know that comes about. And so therefore, you know, even if we have some sort of a landing, it's going to be a soft landing and not a hard landing. So you know, how are you reconciling, you know, this this idea that you know both fiscal and monetary policy have been tight and you know continue to be tight with the fact that private sector balance sheets are strong. So first of all, private sector balance sheets are strong is a very interesting um, assertion. Ex-financial, private sector debt to disposable income is around 40 to 50% higher than it was 20 years ago. So you can take private sector debt as a percentage of GDP, as a percentage of cash flows being earnings, free cash flows, disposable income, wherever you look at, we are more leveraged, even at the private sector level, than we were 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is true instead, and that's correct what you said before, Zuri, that companies have used the chance and households in 2020 and 2021 to lock in low interest rates for longer. So they've basically extended their the duration of their liabilities, right? So they don't need to roll over that immediately. And that helps. That helps because at the first stage of the tightening cycle, when it's a rapid shock of financial conditions, that's what we have seen in 2022. What happens then is you don't have defaults because people don't have variable um, interest rate mortgages and don't have variable uh, liabilities, variable interest rate liabilities to refinance. So they're fine. They just locked it in. They don't need to urge into refinancing. They don't need to succumb basically to tighter financial conditions. What happens instead in that phase three is that you have to reprice valuations because right? you're moving the risk-free rate all of a sudden from zero to 4%. So all valuations which you thought made sense at 0% don't make sense anymore at 4%. That's what we have seen. The second leg of tighter financial condition cycle is what we see today. What we see today is markets trying hard and central banks as well to understand that new risk-free rates at 5% are not going to last a month or two, three. They're going to last 12, 15 months, to say the least. To say the least. Or as central banks are putting it, until they literally break something and they manage to bring inflation down, interest rates are going to be that high. Notice 5% are risk-free rates. Us, the, borrowing, the, the private sector, we don't borrow at risk-free rates. We borrow at private sector borrowing rates. So mortgage rates are 7%, corporate borrowing rates are 7.5%. Those are roughly the levels we borrow at. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens at that point is you have to reprice 
your cost of capital and your cost of doing business for a prolonged period of time. You can't just say this is a shock that is going to go away. This is something that lasts over time. So let's say, uh, as read that you locked in a decent amount of long-term leverage at whatever, five, three, four, five percent if you are a US corporate, right? If you run your business assuming that those are the prevailing interest rates to refinance your debt, you can make certain investments. You can make certain hiring assumptions, certain CapEx assumptions. Mm -hmm. If you think that you reprice borrowing cost only as a shock, short-term shock, you can actually keep your long-term assumptions. If somebody tells you, Zri, we have 7% borrowing rates prevailing for 12, 15, 18 months, it's not only a shock anymore, but it's something that lasts, it has a lasting impact on your decision-making. So the first action you do is you freeze. You don't hire anymore. You cut discretionary spending. You don't do marketing. You don't hire full-time. Just wait the storm out if you can. But don't forget one thing. Companies and households as well do not wait for a refunding cliff all at once and risk not refunding over time, but just waiting for the moment where maybe they're going to get lucky and get a refunding rate, which is much cheaper. They are forced to refund over time. And as they look at rolling their liabilities over time, the longer these tighter financial conditions last, the more likely it is that you are going to have to hit the market and fund at 7% and 8% rate. And yeah. when you do that, your cost of capital, your cost of doing business, your cost of leverage is completely different. That's one observation. The second one is on marginal buyers. And that goes into the housing market, which has, I know is something you want to discuss with me. So yeah, households have locked in the US 30-year mortgages at I think 95% of um, outstanding mortgages in the US have an interest rate below 4% locked in for 10 years plus. So, well, way to go, pretty appealing. What about the marginal buyer, three? Like you cannot have a frozen housing market forever. We have had already a frozen housing market for like nine months. And what happened last week is that Blackstone defaulted on a um, CMBS, so a security backed by stores and offices in Finland. I don't know whether you read it. It's a, it's a default of $550 million, right? Oh, it's not the, a huge Blackstone. Okay, yeah, yeah, of CMBS. That yeah. Blackstone. So it's a CMBS. So it's not a major massive default, but it's a signal. It's a signal that if you don't have a marginal buyer, everybody who needs to service these liabilities, in this case, a security backed by offices, backed by stores, it needs cash flows to service those. So if those cash flows are not there, they need to sell these assets. Sell to whom? To sell to somebody, you need a marginal buyer. With 7% mortgage rates, there are no marginal buyers. So this is a very precarious equilibrium, which we are having when we're trying to freeze the credit markets, basically. And I don't think that people have appreciated yet how tight can be on the credit market, the length of tighter financial conditions. We have seen the shock in 2022. We're now experiencing the prolonged time of uh, tight financial conditions, which can be quite a problem. Mm -hmm. Got, got you. And I, and I think what is what is also interesting with regards to the the the, the housing market is, um, you know, housing has this large multiplier on the rest of the economy, and historically, housing has typically led, um, the economy by about twelve to um twenty four months, and 
I think what is what is interesting um, that, that, that I think it's worth pointing out is, you know, places like Canada, uh, in Canada, the norm is not to have, you know, 30-year fixed rate mortgages. For us, it's having a five-year variable rate mortgage and every, I think it's every five years it resets. And, you know, a lot of people, and, and in Canada, you know, considering how, I think you've posted a chart about this before, where you sort of compared all the different countries' housing markets and how fast their housing prices have, you know, sort of gone up. Um, you know, I think what is, uh, you know, I think on that note, what is what is fascinating is, you know, we have these variable rate mortgages. We also have a very overinflated housing market. And so, you know, places like Canada, you know, are bound to be harder hit compared to, you know, places like the U.S. or say, um, you know, parts of Europe. Just think yeah. So look, there are, there are housing markets really that are even more vulnerable, of course, because you not only have a frozen housing market effectively waiting for an accident to happen, unless mortgage rates come down rapidly, they can only come down rapidly if you get the disinflationary soft, because that allows central banks to slowly cut interest rates, but at the same time, unemployment rate doesn't go up. So you still have people able to sustain the cash flows necessary to pay mortgage installments. That would be ideal for the housing market, and it will, it will help achieving a soft landing for the housing market too, but it is not my base case. Look, you mentioned Canada. Similarly, the UK or Sweden have a similar problem. They have not only a frozen housing market, but they have short-term refinancing issues on top of that, mm -hmm. right? Because these mortgages actually have to be refinanced pretty often. So if I take the UK, uh, I calculate there are roughly over 2 million mortgages to be refinanced in the UK this year. These mortgages basically were all locked in between 2017 and 2018. They had a five-year fixed interest rate. They were locked in at 2.5% on average. And now they need to be refinanced at over 6 mm -hmm. So over 6 compared to 2.5% on the median UK house price means that the median household has to pay 50 to 60% more to refinance, basically to pay his monthly mortgage installments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. UK wages, have, UK wages haven't grown by 60% in nominal terms over the last five years. So basically, you have to cut discretionary spending somewhere else. And this short-term refinancing problem compounds the problem of funding new marginal buyers and the frozen housing market that we just discussed before. Look, the way I see it is the housing market can be frozen only as long until some relatively big accident happens for two reasons. First, it's the biggest asset class in the world. It's by far bigger than the bond market. It's bigger than the bond and the equity market combined. I mean, it's really huge. First of all, so it's it's very, very large, a very leveraged asset class as well. Second, three, between 2014 and 2021, people were desperately looking for yield and carry. This now looks like a long time ago, but it was really the dominant market regime. Give me carry, give me yield. Housing market-related products actually offered both carry and yield. So there were a lot of products being created, relatively leveraged products, very illiquid products, where people actually parked a lot of money into because they could get a rental yield or some sort of a proxy for rental yield, which was much higher than risk-free rate. Mm -hmm. What happens then is you have a lot of money being locked in in very illiquid products, like the Blackstone or the KKR funds of this world, where right now, in order to avoid having to fire sale the assets behind this portfolio, and there is no buyer out there to absorb those three, you are gating redemptions. You are locking people in, making sure they cannot get money out from these funds. So this is a quite 
precarious situation for a super big and super leveraged market out there, which I would watch pretty closely. Yep. I think what is, uh, I think, um, you, know, you know, sticking to Europe for um, another minute, and I think recently you sort of published an article which sort of discussed the, um, discuss the recent outperformance of Europe versus, you know, the rest of the world. And I think, you know, one thing that you've mentioned is that, you know, Europe in general is great at avoiding um, sort of last minute disasters. Um, while it may not be very good at planning, you know, in general, it's, it's very good at avoiding, you know, something that happens, uh, you know, avoiding last minute disasters, as you put it. So um, so could you talk a bit more about, about Europe um, European macro, what you see that is going on outside of just the housing market, and then, um, then where we go from here. Look, I am uh, Italian, I guess. I mean, if somebody didn't know that by my accent at this point in the podcast, I guess it's very clear where I'm from. So I have a, a domestic angle to uh, European affairs, let's say. And what I've learned in my career running money in Europe is uh, Europe is always on the verge of a crisis. Right? Somewhere it's happening. Is it, you know, Italy? Is it the private sector? That crisis somewhere? Is the political crisis? A geopolitical? It's always happening somewhere. But so that tells me one thing. Before I go to the but, the one thing it tells me is that Europe is terrible at planning, like a long-term policy making. There are structural issues are never fixed in Europe. We still have uh, a monetary union without a fiscal union. We still have no banking union. Etc. 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 So we we know how many structural issues are still there, not being fixed. Bad long-term policy making. But every single crisis where it looked like Europe couldn't redefine the solution, it always ended up finding a solution. So my mentor used to tell me, if you take ten Europeans and want them to agree in principle on some long-term solution, you will never be able to do that. But lock them in in a room to solve a crisis and they will find a way to solve the crisis. And why? Because Europe cannot break up. It's geopolitically too important as a project by now to be broken down very easily. So European policymaking always tries to find a solution to crisis. And that also explains the recent outperformance of European macro, coming back to your question. Because in October, if you remember, we were mm -hmm. discussing whether Germany or mm -hmm. actually the whole Europe could keep its lights on during winter. That, that was the, the level of discussion, right? Because of the energy crisis. And that was maximum pessimism as well when it comes to soft uh, economic survey, earnings per share expectations. We're talking about uh, an industry-wide shutdown in Germany. That's mm -hmm. the, the level of thoughts we were having back then. What Europe did is it um, effectively used public funds to backstop the private sector from a an energy crunch. So we spent on average five to six percent GDP per capita. This is a pretty large number to make sure that companies and the private sector were somehow shielded from the energy crunch. And these measures were criticized at the beginning because you can't print commodities, you can't print energy, you cannot sustainably use public sector funds, public sector subsidies to solve a structural problem, which is um, your sources of energy in Europe. Yes, that's correct, Sri, but it surely solves the problem short term. It definitely does, right? You use public money to make sure that your private sector doesn't suffer too much. So what happens at that point is because of the large size of that stimulus, you ended up not shutting down 
industries, uh, you ended up avoiding an energy crunch. And now all that pessimism, which was rising in October, it's, you know, it's not, it doesn't make sense anymore. So you have this repricing on the way up together with the fact that the China is reopening and the European economy to a certain extent is exposed to uh, trade with China, especially Germany. Optimism fading in as well. So you have lower energy prices, you have more disposable income than you thought you had. You have the Chinese reopening tailwinds behind you. And you have looser financial conditions, which were prevailing between November and January, feeding into data today. Because don't forget, in November, the other narrative was it's disinflation, it's soft landing, central banks are done, bond markets rallied, credit markets rallied, equity markets rallied, and central banks didn't push back. This lasts for basically two months to three months. And this obviously helps sentiment. It brings back um, some animal spirits that are now reflected in macro data. Now, this is the cyclical European macro story, and it explains why Europe has been outperforming on macro data recently. If you take the big picture and you look at German real retail sales, so you look at how on an inflation-adjusted basis, German consumers are actually buying stuff on a volume basis, not on a price basis, but how much stuff are they buying? Real consumption, in other words. Real retail sales in Germany have had three major drawdowns in 2000 and a great financial crisis, so 2009, 2013, following the European debt crisis and the mm -hmm. deleveraging that came after that. Mm -hmm. And now, so uh, basically between summer 2022 and today, all these three drawdowns peak to trough in real retail sales were roughly 5%. So you drew down about 5% of real retail sales in Germany. It took on average 18 months to have this drawdown pick to trough. Today, you are nine months in and you are already drawing down 5% from the top. So from an inflation adjusted perspective, consumers in Europe are not doing particularly well. We did avoid the disaster that was priced in and together with some tailwinds that just described, that helps European macro data to outperform in the short term. But again, don't miss the forest for the trees because European borrowing conditions are very tight by any historical standards. European high-yield corporates could borrow at 4%. Junk corporates in Europe, I repeat, could borrow at 4% for seven years on average between 2014 and 2021. That's very cheap borrowing. Today, that borrowing rate is 9%, 10%. So these conditions have changed and consumers and the private sectors are not doing particularly well on a structural basis in Europe. And that's, I think, the forest that people shouldn't miss for the trees. Mm -hmm. I th you know, uh, for a second, I thought you were going to say that, you know, in terms of the last minute, you know, avoiding a last minute disaster, um, Europe, the European policymakers somehow made the winter a lot more mild than it was supposed to be. So. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yep. And, and and you know one more thing that I did want to discuss with you was was China and so the other uh, the other sort of theme that's been you know been discussed for for quite a while now has been this idea of a Chinese reopening and how that is going to bolster you know global bolster the global economy and you know, people have you know saved a lot of money while being under lockdown and now if that if you know once that lockdown you know, sort of completely eases you know we're going to see a strong demand impulse from China so you know how. So you know, so what 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 is your take on that, and how are you thinking about the China the Chinese reopening? So China is reopening, 
uh, I think that's that has been uh, one of the schizophrenic themes for markets. Uh, three. So in 2023, the market is pretty much schizophrenic. 2022 was a year for macro trends. If you got the macro trend right of hawkish central banks and you rode this macro trend over time, you made a lot of money. 2023 seems to be more uh, like a mean reversion, lack of conviction market so far. So take the China reopening. Gen 1st to Gen 16. Whoa, China is reopening. I'm going to buy all the Chinese assets I have. I need to pile into renminbi. I need to buy everything I can in emerging markets in China. Then the Chinese reopening doesn't show up in data yet. And the market freaks out. It's like, what, what, what? They haven't reopened. Oh my God, I need to sell all my Chinese assets I have. So then Chinese equities actually turned negative on a year-to-date performance at the end of February. So no Chinese reopening. It's been canceled, three. Forget about it. Uh, then Chinese PMIs come out and they're very strong. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, what? These guys have really reopened. Yeah, yeah, now I remember the story. I'm going to go and buy all the Chinese assets again. So look, the story from China is that, yes, China is reopening. I think it's been um, very, very clear, very clearly communicated in policy as well. You also can see that policy is becoming supportive on other fronts, where indeed it was very tight a year or two years ago. The real estate market is very, uh, very clear, where China is trying to backstop the drawdown in their in their property prices. They are helping developers and asking banks to uh, support developers with credit and real estate projects with credit. Um, so you can see there is a willingness to support the economy and to support the reopening. It It's not a switch that you can turn on and off in a second and it shows up in macro data. I mean, guys, chill out. Give it a couple of months and it will show up into data. It's already showing in some uh, data in China. You might not trust the data from China. I understand that. So I think the best way to track uh, the Chinese reopening in data is in proxy economies for China. So you have to look at Australia, South Korea, Japan. So economies that have pretty pretty decent amount of uh, trades with China. So I run an analysis looking at what's the impact on GDP of each economy from a 10% increase in imports from China. So where China really to reopen three, it might need to import a lot of goods and services from outside economies. Mm -hmm. So I looked at what are the economies with the highest um, economic sensitivity to China. And of course, you, you find a lot of Asian economies, um, Thailand, Malaysia, for instance. But across the biggest developed market economies, you find South Korea, definitely South Korea. Uh, you find Taiwan and you find Japan and you find Australia. So having a look at these economies to have really a more transparent idea of whether China's reopening will be crucial over the next few months. But I'm pretty sure that the data will um, show that China is indeed reopening uh, and it will be become clearer also in this proxy economic data. So what does it mean for global macro? Um, that's a very interesting question. And I think it means a cyclical boost to nominal economic growth especially in these developed market economies. So Australia, Japan, to a certain extent, also Europe. This will add fuel to the fire, interestingly, of the narrative that is prevailing now that the economy is strong, is doing very well. So what recession are we talking about? It's higher for longer. It's central banks needing to tighten policy for a longer period of time because the economy is holding up much better than they thought it would. And so to bring down inflation, you need... You need tighter policy for longer. 
the thing is, a reopening from China is a one-off impulse. Mm -hmm. You know, it lasts three months. The most of the impulse of the reopening is actually absorbed into macro data in two to three months, also in proxy economies like Korea, Australia, Japan, and Europe. What happens after that? Where is the growth impulse coming from? And in the meantime, you would have tightened policy even further because of the prevailing narrative. So what I'm describing, Sri, is that as we head towards April, May, roughly, we run the risk that we have reprised terminal rates in the US at 6%, terminal rates in Europe at over 4%. We have tightened policy for longer. We have priced these terminal rates and tighter borrowing conditions lasting for longer. So not only higher terminal rates, but also tighter for longer. And in the meantime, we have exhausted all the cyclical short dated growth impulses that you could ever dream of. And the housing market in the meantime is most likely still frozen. So what happens starting summer? And my answer to that is that I still expect the US recession to start in summer 2023. When you say summer, you mean July, August? June, July. June, okay. June July is actually my, uh, my starting date. Of course, you know I don't have a crystal ball. So this is the result of a lot of macro models that I put up together, macro data I look at. Um, I think June, July is a very, um, at least it's the model outcome of my models for a US recession to start. Got it. And and um, and so, you know, I think the other thing is also like you said, uh, stuff like the inverted yield curve, as you mentioned, how the housing market, et cetera. And so, you know, when you put it all together, it does seem like um, a lot of people had initially expected that, you know, end of Q4 uh, 2022, early 2023 would be when the recession happened. You know, it definitely seems to be slightly delayed. But you know, thinking about you know, thinking about the fact that you know there uh, that you do see a recession coming. Now, where where do you look for opportunity in this kind of market? Just because of how much uncertainty and how much volatility there is. Look, um, I'm gonna say something boring now, but um, for the first time in twenty years, investors are given an option and being paid for it. Normally, buying options requires you putting a premium up front, so spending money to buy the option. This time, you have an option and you're getting paid for it, and the option is called cash or cash-like instruments. So T-bills are yielding 5%. They're probably going to yield a little bit more in the US. In other developed markets, you're looking at 4 4.5% short-term risk-free interest rates. And cash is basically an option, right? So you're sitting on it, spending premium on it, and hoping, normally spending premium, this time you're getting paid for it, and hoping that you'll get some opportunities around there. And I think right now, at this macro juncture I just described in this podcast, having the luxury to be paid 5% risk-free rate, to have the option to wait for investment opportunities to arise, it's a great uh, risk-reward. So that's that's a boring statement, but I have to be honest, and from a NASDAQ allocation perspective, looking at cash at this point in the cycle is pretty attractive. The other thing that I really like here is um, I think in a couple of months, we might get a, a very good chance um, to buy the yen, Japanese yen, and to buy uh, bonds as well, both in Europe and in the US. If I'm right on what I just described, you will be looking at the bond market trying to um, basically follow this narrative of higher for longer, which means that you'll have to move in, move 
cuts further away down the curve. So front-end interest rates, but also to a certain extent, back-end interest rates will rise. We yeah. have already seen that with 10-year treasuries going to 4%. But look, as you approach the time when the cyclical growth tailwinds exhaust themselves, and that might be in a month or two, including the Chinese reopening tailwinds, what happened then is you are given an opportunity that historically is pretty rare. You can buy bonds when two conditions are met, which is everybody hates bonds. That's basically what where you will be because it's higher for longer. The economy is doing well. This will be the prevailing narrative. Nobody wants bonds when the economy is doing well and central banks are tightening. No, it's, it's the worst possible combination to get bonds on your book. So everybody will be hating bonds at that point. Mm -hmm. And on top of it, the cyclical growth tailwinds will be exhausting themselves. So when you get to that point, you meet both points on this checklist, which historically, given my analysis, when you meet them both, you're looking at 12 months subsequent returns of over 10% owning bonds, which is in bond land quite a return, generally speaking. And I think you might uh, check both um, uh, of, this, of these conditions pretty soon. And the Japanese yen is the last thing that could make a lot of sense here for a couple of reasons. Not only if the economy slows down, generally speaking, Japanese investors repatriate capital back to Japan, and that strengthens the yen. But this time, you might have divergent policy in a couple of months, where the Fed is looking at, you know, the bond market has basically fully priced in this title for longer story while the economy starts to turn south. But in Japan, mm -hmm. core inflation lags, which means core inflation might still be rising a bit. And we have a new governor in Japan that might want to just take another approach compared to Kuroda, scrap yield curve control, and maybe let interest rate ride, rise a bit in Japan. So you have a double whammy there, where not only the global economic growth will be declining, that helps Japanese yen in the first place, but also idiosyncratically speaking, in Japan, you might have monetary policy that helps the yen to strengthen. So I think both the yen and bonds in a couple of months will be looking very attractive as an addition to portfolios. Cash remains, I think, by far the best risk-reward asset at the moment. When it comes to equities, um, so when do you buy equities and you are looking at 12 months forward returns that are very positive, outlier positive returns? That happens in two cases. A, you have very supportive monetary policy. That means it's trending below neutral. And the path of monetary policy is pretty sure to go at interest rates below neutral levels and earnings are trending up. This is the best possible combination to buy equities. This was 2021, basically, sorry, where you had Fed funds at 0% and you had earnings rising by 40%. Perfect. Great setup, right? When are we going to get anything similar to that? That's the question. So for that, you need the Fed to be cutting rates and to be on a sustainable, predictable path to interest rate below neutral, namely around 2%, at least mm -hmm. 2%. Okay, we are at five rising. Market is pricing five and a half next and five and a half to stay for another 12 months. So I don't think you're going to get to that path anywhere soon. So you need to be patient there. And the second is earnings. And earnings are already declining on a year-on-year -year basis. And bye-bye models, they will be declining further. So effectively, what I'm describing is not a market that is very supportive, historically speaking, for equities until 
you get the Federal Reserve on a cutting path to 2% on a very predictable basis, and you get earnings close to bottoming. That might only happen somewhere very late in 2023, early 2024, but I don't see it happening before. Got it. Awesome. Awesome. Alf. And I think that's um, that this is a great note to sort of leave it on, um, you know, by, you know, six months down the, you know, now cash is the best and then, you know, cash is king. Six months down the line, you know, buy bonds and buy yen. So fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Alf. It was terrific to have you on. Thanks, Ray. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, in case people enjoyed me blabbering for an hour about macro, um, if they want to find more, uh, my work is at the Macro Compass in case somebody's interested in checking out. Yep. And you can also find Alf on Twitter at MacroAlf. Um, and, and yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast, dude. Thanks, Ray. It's a pleasure. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.